So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll be in verses 21, I mean 1 to 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. And so y'all, 2020 has reminded me and taught me a number of things. Um, I'll highlight one, one thing in particular is the importance of washing your hands. Like for real. And I'm sure a number of you guys have probably seen GIFs and videos that drive home this very point. You see, one of the things I learned is that, you know, washing your hands is actually a process. You know what I'm saying? Like you go and you turn on the sink and you rinse your hands first and then you get some soap and you scrub your hands the entire length of the happy birthday song. And then you go and you get a little paper towel and you dry your hands and you use that same paper towel to turn off the sink and to open the door. And so that is the process. And if you didn't know, now you know. But washing your hands is a process and the intent and the goal is to prevent oneself from catching COVID. Well, in our passage this morning, we will see the Pharisees and the scribes, they too will emphasize washing and scrubbing. But it won't be for hygienic purposes. Instead, they're doing it in order to maintain purity and prevent defilement. And what we will see is that we will see Jesus teaches that we can't clean ourselves but rather we are in need to be cleansed. And so Mark chapter 1 verses, Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 23. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping with the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash their hands, unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human traditions. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he, went, when he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? 
Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and it's eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. You may be seated. And so our big idea this morning is this, that true defilement comes from the heart. I'll say it again. Our big idea is true defilement comes from the heart. And therefore, we need a new heart. And so this passage can be broken up into three scenes. The first is, Jesus is confronted. Second, Jesus calls out hypocrisy. And third, Jesus clarifies defilement. So Jesus is confronted. Jesus calls out hypocrisy. Jesus clarifies defilement. First, Jesus is confronted. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. You see, the religious leaders, they are back on the scene. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw a ton of conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders as they have questioned him a number of times and concluded that he was demon-possessed. You see, they, they came from Jerusalem, and they come, and they're like Jesus is likely in Gennesaret. And these religious leaders, they come, and they're about to stir up some trouble. You see, they gather around Jesus not to learn from him, but to oppose him. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping with the tradition of the elders. And so they watched like a hawk. And they witnessed the disciples enjoying some Hawaiian bread without washing their hands first. And so these religious leaders, they are astonished because the, the disciples broke the tradition of the elders. Now, these traditions, they began during the intertestamental period or what we would call the silent years, and they were passed down orally. You see, they were intended to keep one from disobeying the law. You see, God, he has given laws about cleanliness, what to eat and what not to eat. Now, by ceremonial washing and being clean, the law only commanded the priest to wash before entering the tabernacle. And that they must wash if they were to touch some sort of bodily discharge. You see, there was no command of washing before eating. You see, scripture was silent on this. But, was, but where scripture was silent the religious leaders began to shout with their traditions. You see, they wanted all people to be ceremonially clean, and so they came up with these ceremonially clean customs. You see, the problem wasn't their traditions, but it was that they thought that they could be clean and righteous by their works. You see, the other problem was that they equated their own traditions to the authority of Scripture. Scripture. 
You see, according to their traditions, the Jews would wash their hands before eating to maintain purity and prevent defilement. You see, and what, they, what, these, what the religious leaders believe is that they have defiled themselves, the disciples have. They have made themselves unclean because they ate with unwashed hands. Now, it's important to know that though the disciples broke tradition, they did not break Scripture. And this is where the tension lies. You see, these religious leaders have equated their traditions to Scripture and had a wrong view on how to be clean and righteous. You see, they thought that it was through works. And so they were indignant at the fact that these disciples have broken the traditions. You see, in the mind of the religious leaders, they thought that the disciples were defiled. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping with the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed, and there are many other customs they have received and keep, with the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. You see, there are more than one tradition. There was a number of them, and Mark begins to clarify and make it known. You see, they'd wash after they go to the marketplace, they'd wash all their utensils before using them. And all of this, again, is to maintain purity and prevent defilement. You see, another thing that was an issue with these traditions is that they solely focused on the external, solely focused on external works, but they had no concerns at all for the heart. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they loved giving their attention to traditions and external work, external works. But these religious leaders, they did not care or give a thought about their heart. You see, they'd be sure to not commit sexual immorality and to not steal. But they'd ignore sins like coveting and lust, to name a few. And beloved, before we begin to shake our heads at them, the question for us to consider is, are we functioning like them? You see, do we focus on external works and seek to avoid sins like sexual immorality and drunkenness, which we should seek to avoid? Well, at the same time, are we ignoring sins like lust, envy, and jealousy? You see, when was the last time that you confessed that you was envious of someone? You see, we may be in danger of functioning like these religious leaders. If our war against sin is solely zeroing in on the quote-unquote big sins while ignoring sins that cannot be seen. You see, these religious leaders, they only focused on tradition. They only focused on outward appearance. Now, let me make a quick caveat real quick, okay? Because tradition isn't a bad thing in and of itself. You see, they were intended to be a means to obedience. See, tradition is bad when, it's, when it contradicts Scripture. It's bad when it is equated to Scripture or when it's placed above Scripture. Tradition is also bad when we begin to hold other people to our own standards of tradition. You see, what can this look like? Well, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 it commands us to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, 
that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so to obey this command, we create a custom of having a quiet time where one reads scripture as the first thing in the morning, and they do it every day for at least 30 minutes and pray, they journal, and they make know that, man, I got to walk away with something profound. You see, if you've set that standard for yourself, it's not a bad thing. But if you begin to hold everyone to that very same standard, that's when you go wrong. You see, it's a wonderful practice to discipline ourselves, to read God's word continually, to have our minds renewed. But scripture does not prescribe what a quiet time should look like. You see, one is in the wrong when we begin to find righteousness in these very things and begin to judge fellow brothers and sisters about it. And we try to hold them accountable to our standard and conclude that they are in sin if they're not meeting our standard. See, that's where we go wrong. And that's something that we must be on guard against. May we not have this pharisaical attitude as it relates to the spiritual disciplines. May we encourage one another. Again, it's a really good thing to read God's word. It's a great thing to read God's word daily and meditate on it. But may we be on guard against setting some type of standard and holding other people to it. And so a question for us to consider is what traditions do you practice that you're more prone to act more like the Pharisees? See, it'd be good for us to search our own hearts on these matters and to pray in light of them. Look at verse 5. It says, So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? And so the disciples, I mean, the religious leaders, they come and they question Jesus about the disciples breaking traditions. And they may have asked Jesus because it very well may be the case that Jesus may have signed off on it. And here, once again, we see tension. We see conflict. They're beefing with Jesus. You see, the disciples' actions, again, broke the traditions. And the religious leaders have elevated their traditions. And so they thought that the disciples have defiled themselves. They have disobeyed God. And worst of all, Jesus let them do it. And so they confronted him on this matter. They like, Jesus, you tripping. And you got some explaining to do. You know what I'm saying? Why ain't your disciples obeying the traditions? So they come at him sideways, upset and angry about this thing. Like, Jesus, you know the traditions. Why aren't you having your disciples keep them? So this is where the conflict is. The tension is rising. And they come at them and they're opposing and confronting the Son of God, though they do not know who he is. And so they confront him. But now let's see how Jesus responds as he calls out hypocrisy. Look at verse 6 and 7. Where he says, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands. You see, Jesus didn't immediately respond or answer their question. Instead, he responded by calling them hypocrites. He says, y'all are actors, imposters. You see, they appear to be holy and righteous, but they're not. It looks like they love God, but they don't. 
They, their worship was external and according to their customs, but not from the heart and not according to Scripture. You see, Jesus, he quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, and says that the Pharisees are guilty of doing the exact same thing that Isaiah prophesied. You see, in Isaiah's day, the religious leaders, they abandoned God's instruction and followed their own wisdom. See, they would honor God with lip service, but disobey him and live by their own wisdom and customs. You see, their heart was far from the Lord. And Jesus says that the Pharisees are guilty of doing the same thing. Their devotion and piety is solely external. He says, the heart is far from me. Now, when he says their heart is far from me, he's not referring to the organ inside of us. But what this is, is it is the center of our most of, of our innermost parts. It's the place of one's affections, intellect, and will. And this is why we see that the greatest command, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. Because the reality is, if God has our hearts, then he has all of us. He has our affections, he has our devotion, and he has our will. He said, but they were guilty of not loving God from the heart. They focused on the external works of the law and their traditions. Instead, they were devoted to their own customs and perceived that they were worshiping God as they did so. They didn't love God, though their piety from their tradition would convince one otherwise. But God knew their hearts. Because you can't convince God of what isn't true. Their worship was empty and was based on their tradition instead of Scripture. Now, the reality is, as we read these verses, this may be more common in the Bible Belt South, where going to church is the thing that everyone does. You would dress up, speak the Christian lingo, confess Jesus Christ, but you never seek to obey him. You live in sin and conceal your sin, but you would seek to exalt your good works. You would live in obedience to your own tradition instead of scripture. You see, the reality is, beloved, God is honored and rightly worshiped when we extol him from our hearts and our devotion to him is in obedience to what he commands, not according to the customs that we create. You see, he is honored when we worship him from our hearts. He is honored when he has our hearts. So the question for us to consider is, does God actually have your heart? Or does it only appear that he does? You see, this would be good to talk about with members so that we can actually help one another love God with all of our hearts, encourage one another and pray for one another in this matter. Look at verse 8. Jesus goes on. He says, abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He says, you're guilty of human tradition supplanting scripture. They've rejected God's word and they have latched on to their very own customs, which is a grave error. You see, man's words should never supersede God's words. And the reason is because man ain't God. Only God is God, and God made man. 
And only his word is divinely authoritative. But they didn't treat his word as that. They treated their traditions in that manner, elevating it. Look at verses 9 to 13. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. And so Jesus, he rebukes them for ignoring and overthrowing God's commands in order to hold on and establish their own human traditions. He gives an example of them doing this. You see the command? It's the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. He makes known the consequences of disobeying this command. That whoever does this must be, whoever does not honor his father or mother must be put to death. And Jesus gives a scenario. He says, let's say that a son has property or finances that could be given to his parents to honor and serve them. But instead of using it this way, he makes it Corbin, which means it's a Hebrew word for offering. So he vows to offer his possessions to the temple, which will take place upon his death. And until then, he can no longer use that money or property for the ordinary purposes of serving others. Therefore, it cannot be used as a way to honor his parents. Now, let's say that he's convicted about it. He desires to use it in this way, and so he wants to withdraw his pledge of this offering so that he could honor his parents. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees would prohibit him from withdrawing it even though they knew that the very purpose was to serve and honor his parents. You see, they prevent him from honoring his mother and father in order that they may obey, in order that he may obey their traditions. And this is an example of them rejecting God's command for the sake of their own traditions. And Jesus says that that is only one example that you guys do. He says, these traditions appear to honor God, but they don't. Because when God's commands and these human customs, when they are at odds, the customs always win out. You see, Jesus says that they have abandoned, invalidated, and nullified the law for the sake of their own traditions. They don't love God. The customs they taught, it burdened the people. What was intended, their teaching should have drew them towards God, but instead it drew them away. Calls them hypocrites. Now, beloved, it's important to know that abandoning God's law for human tradition wasn't just something that happened back then. You see, our very own Baptist denomination did similar in the 17th and 18th century when they disciplined church members who would drink alcohol and who would dance. Now, don't get me wrong, the intent was good. You see, seeing that alcohol, drinking alcohol can lead to drunkenness and dancing can lead to sexual immorality. But the reality is that having a drink and dancing aren't sins in and of themselves. 
You see, back then, Baptist Day focused more on tradition in this area. But the reality is, if we're not careful, we too can abandon Scripture for the sake of tradition. And so what could this look like for us in our day? I think this can look like, I think for us, we can be, we can be tempted to abandon the biblical commands on sex, sexuality, and marriage in order to hold to the world's tradition on these matters and convince ourselves that it's a way to love people. Scripture teaches that God made humans male and female, that he has sovereignly assigned the gender of each person at conception, and that it's unchangeable. He teaches that marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, and that sexual intimacy is to only be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Yet in our day, we can be tempted to reject these biblical truths and hold to the world's traditions on these matters for the sake of acceptance. We could also conclude that this is a way to love our neighbors by trying to nullify the biblical commands on particular matters. Now, beloved, we should certainly love our neighbors. We should never be jerks for Jesus. We should never be harsh. We should not be judgmental. But we shouldn't reject or compromise God's word on any matter. If we truly believe that God's word is authoritative and inerrant, then the loving thing to do is to share God's word rather than compromise. Now, as we share, what type of people should we be? I said we should be humble. We should be clear. We should be gentle. We should share that God opposes all sin and not particular ones. We should share that he has saved us from our sin and that in his mercy, he calls all people to repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ that they may be saved. Beloved, we should love our neighbors, befriend them, serve them, care for them, have compassion on them, and also pray for their conversions. But we must hold fast to God's word and not reject it. You see, this temptation to reject Scripture will continue to increase as our society continues to marginalize Christians. But may we not reject it. May we hold fast to Scripture. You see, in this section, Jesus, he is calling out their hypocrisy. He says that you guys don't love God, you love your traditions. He says your honor and your worship is empty. It is fruitless. It is not according to revelation, but according to man-made customs. So he calls out their hypocrisy. And now let's see him clarify the source of defilement. So Jesus clarifies defilement. Look at verse 14. It says, summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. You see, this conversation, it goes from personal to public. Jesus brings in the crowd as he answers the Pharisees' question, and he commands them to really get what he's about to say. He wants them to hear it and to know it. Look at verse 15. He says, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see, Jesus, he has dropped the mic like a boss. You see, he completely went against the traditions right here. 
what he does is he's correcting and clarifying the actual source of defilement. And he does it ambiguously, but he's going to be even more specific. Look at verses 17 to 19. Where he says, when he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and it's eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. You see, the disciples, they were confused, and they want clarity. Now, I understand some of their confusion. It may come from the fact that in the law, there were commands that dealt with food and what they could and could not eat. So they're like, what's going on here? What do you mean what we eat? I mean, what goes into us can't defile us. And so Jesus, what he does here is he spells it out for them. He makes it plain. He says that defilement isn't caused by the external, but the internal. Now, Jesus can say this because of who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is the law giver. You see, the laws in the old covenant, they were intended. They were not intended. My bad. The laws in the old covenant, they were not intended to make Israel righteous and clean, but rather they were intended to show Israel how unrighteous and unclean they are. It was to be used as a mirror to show them that they're unrighteous and that they need to be saved and they need to be cleansed. That's why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law and save all who trust in him. You see, we're declared righteous, not by our works of the law, not by our cleansing, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We are cleansed, not by cleansing by, of avoiding food, but through trusting in Jesus. You see, the reality is Jesus brings the old covenant and his practices to an end. And in the new covenant, God has made known that all foods are clean. We see this explicitly in Acts chapter 10 in the vision where Jesus gives Peter, where he lowers food for Peter. He says, kill and eat. Does it three times, correcting Peter. And it's even settled all the more in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. They realize, yeah, we can't hold them to these old covenant practices. We ourselves were unable to hold them. But one is saved not by these works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says that all food are clean. So praise God, y'all. We can enjoy some bacon. If our conscience is clear as we do it. Look at verse 20 and 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And so Jesus clarifies that the source of defilement is not the heart. I mean, not, it's not the heart. It is the heart. Not the food, but the heart. You see, in relation to purity, the heart is what matters because everything that we do flows from the heart. Jesus says that all of these sins flow from the same fount. They spring from the same well, and that's the heart. J.C. Rao will say it this way, that the seeds of all mischief and wickedness are in the heart. 
You see, our hearts are not good. This idea that people have good hearts, it did not come from God. God is abundantly clear on this matter. He makes it known in Scripture, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Now, one may wonder, well, when does it happen this way? God makes it known. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, The inclinations of the human heart is evil from youth onward. You see, this is why we don't have to teach our kids to rebel. They rebel by their very own nature. You see, their rebellion and their sin, it stems from their hearts. This is why when one commits sexual immorality, or when they lie, or when they slander, or steal, or think evil thoughts, no one should ever say that I don't know where that came from. Because it came from the heart. You see, we must be careful to not misplace the responsibility of our own sin. You see, Jesus makes it known that, you know, the reason that we have road rage isn't because of traffic, but it's because sin is already within us. The reason that we would discipline our children harshly for their disobedience is not because they disobey, but because there is sin dwelling within us. Unclean dishes are not the reason that I go off on my roommate or my spouse. My co-workers gossiping is not the reason that I participate in slander. Now, beloved, I am not belittling context at all. I'm just saying context is not the cause of our sin. You see, our context can change and our sin will still be exposed. You see, our sins flow from our hearts and they are what defile us before God. And the reason It's because of original sin. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, he was our representative. He was our federal head. And so his guilt and the corrupt nature has been imputed to us. Our nature is corrupt, and therefore we sin against God. You see, the heart is the source of our defilement, which is where the religious leaders got it wrong. You see, they solely focused on their external works and thought that they could be righteous by doing good works, by all these external works. But inwardly, they were dead. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. You see, the problem is not the outside. The problem is the inside. And since defilement comes from within, beloved, we need a clean heart. But we can't cleanse our own hearts. We need a heart transplant. We need a new heart. And since the problem is inside of us, we need someone who is outside of us to cleanse us. And as Jesus is making this clear to the disciples, the disciples may have wondered, well, then how can we be righteous before God and cleansed before him if we are unclean? 
To which I would say, that is a great question. You see, the reality is, left to ourselves, we are condemned before God, and we stand defiled. We need to be saved, and we need a new heart. We need God to cleanse us and save us. And this is the very promise that God made is what he will do for his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27 says it this way. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statues and carefully observe my ordinances. What a sweet promise. And the question is, how will God do this? Well, it will be through Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man, who lived perfectly, having a pure heart. He never sinned. He died on the cross as a substitute for all of our sins. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave, and he forgives all who turn from sin and trust in him. You see, the Lord Jesus, he inaugurates the new covenant to where through his shed blood, all who trust in him are saved. We are forgiven and we are cleansed. We are given new hearts and we are made new creations in Christ Jesus. You see, we are justified before God and we are cleansed of our defilement solely through the work of Jesus Christ. It's not what we do. It is what he has done. And now in Christ, we have a new walk which is fruit of our salvation. We have been saved. And though we've been saved, we live in this body of flesh. So we wage war with sin. But beloved, we can resist sin now. We don't have to obey. We can walk in obedience by the grace of of God because we are no longer enslaved to sin. You see, this list of sins in this passage should be put away from us who are in Christ Jesus because of God's grace towards us, because he has saved us. And now when we sin, we should, what should we do? We should confess our sins to God for he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we confess and we forsake them. Beloved, our lives should be remarkably different because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The grace of God that has saved us is the very same grace that trains us. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 makes it known this way. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, we've been saved and we are being transformed by the grace of God. You see, external obedience nor tradition can make us righteous before God. It does not purify us. We are declared righteous through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And it is his blood that actually cleanses us and purifies us. And so if you're not a Christian, I am glad that you're here. I am sure that you are guilty of some of the sins that Jesus Christ has listed in this passage. And Jesus makes known that they flow from your heart and they are what defile you. And so hear this, the wrong application to this sermon and this passage in particular 
The wrong application would be to try to clean up your act because he makes known that you can't clean up your act. He makes known it's not the act that needs to be clean, it's the heart. You need a new heart. You need to be forgiven of your sins and you need to be saved. But the good news is God offers you all of this and more through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, you, if you were to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he's the son of God, that he came, came in human flesh, walked among us, died for our sins, resurrected from the grave. If you trust that very message, the Bible says that you will be saved. Your sins will be completely forgiven. He would remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You would go from being standing before God as defiled to being seen as holy and blameless before him, all because of what Jesus Christ has done. You could be saved by the grace of God, cleansed by the blood of Christ, made new in Christ to where you have a new walk by the grace of God. So if you want to know more, I would highly encourage you to talk to any of our members after service. This is, the one, this is one of the conversations that we love to have with people. Telling them about Jesus and praying for people to turn from their sin and trust in him because he is a merciful savior and he is the only savior. So I would encourage you, if you don't know him, trust in him and be saved. Trust in him and be cleansed. You can only be cleansed through him. As we see in this passage, the true source of defilement is the heart. And the only way to be cleansed is by believing in Jesus Christ. See, beloved, we who have been saved and been cleansed, may we live as those who have been cleansed, as those who are made new. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you are a merciful God. Though we stand condemned before you, you sent your son to save us, to rescue us. You condemned your son in the flesh as he bore the wrath that we rightfully deserve that we may be saved and reconciled to you. God, it is in your grace and your grace alone that we stand before you as holy and blameless because of your great love. Oh God, may we live as those who have been cleansed. The very sins that have defiled us, may we forsake. May we walk in newness of life by your grace and for your glory. God, may we long for the day where we don't war with the flesh, where we put on what's incorruptible, where we never sin again, and we sing your praises and sing praises to the Lamb who was slain. God, may our eyes be fixed upon that day. May that day come soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.